0: welcome to monday morning coffee with inside the firm each week our hosts will be interviewing local regional and national business leaders to give you an inside peek into how they lead their business to success in the ever-competitive business climate
1: welcome to monday morning coffee with inside the firm today i have a very special guest a guy that i have been trying to get in touch with and he's been trying to get in touch with me for weeks now But finally, I have Derek Kirk on the podcast, and he is a candid motivational speaker and successful entrepreneur. He's been many things, an orphan, a homeless teen, adopted, a co-worker, and the subject of a documentary called Innocence Lost. These days, he's been investing mostly in the dreams of others, literally and figuratively. He is a hope dealer. Derek,
0: welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to be here. It's been, it's been a chase uh, getting here. Uh, well, we, we made it happen. We made it happen. We made it happen for sure. Well, let's, th- let's start things off by, uh, why don't you tell us a little
1: bit about more about more of your past, uh, whatever you feel comfortable with, obviously. You are, you are truly a rose that grew from the concrete, so to speak. Uh, where did you grow up and how did you make it out of such a tough start in life?
0: No problem. Um, I grew up in uh, Detroit, Michigan. Uh, Detroit is split up by East Coast, South, uh, and West, uh, and so I grew up on the on the West. Uh, uh, my teen years were more on the West side, but my earlier stages, I'm on the East side of Detroit, and the the East side of Detroit is is kind of an extremely dangerous place to to live. It's one of the most dangerous places in America, uh, and so that's where I was born. Uh, and on the street that I grew up in, it's not even on the census anymore. So it's just a blank space. But actually, there were kids there like myself. And um, growing up in, in those areas where um, you're pretty much invisible to the, to the rest of the state uh, and, the, and the rest of the city, uh, crazy things happen. And, but um, as a six-year-old kid living in that area, these things become normal to you. You become numb to these things. This is your life. Uh, you're happy in those zones, in those areas, in that danger and those threats. Uh, that becomes second nature to you. You thrive in those areas. So I went to elementary school every day. I walked about two miles to school uh, with me, myself and my sisters. And I walked two miles back home from school through all the drug zones, the gang areas, uh, sometimes by myself with no fear at all. They, these things were normal. Uh, for my sisters and and I, and we felt comfortable doing that. Uh, the the household I I grew up in um, was uh, myself, my two sisters, and my older brother, my mother and her boyfriend. Uh, my mother was addicted to drugs. Uh, her boyfriend is the one that got her addicted to drugs, and um, and the drug dealer who everyone in the neighborhood bought from uh, was lived in our basement. And so you can see how the the gang affiliation was very heavy in my house and drug use was extremely heavy in my house as well. There was multiple attempts on our lives uh, throughout this, by the age of six to eight, I think each of those years, there was one attempt in our life each year, two house fires, uh, someone tried to burn us down and then one attempted robbery that could have went horribly wrong. And so growing up, these things did not, a, a six-year-old, 68-year-old should not be numb to gun violence. They should not be numb to attempts on their lives. But sadly, a kid uh, can withstand so much, so much can become normal to a kid to where uh, if you remove them from that, that's when they're scared. Mm-hmm. And safety is, is what I feared. When, in places where uh, now you look at it, I should have felt safe, those are the places I actually was scared in dangers where i actually was pretty comfortable because it was familiar. I knew the outcomes. I knew the threats. Um, uh, so I knew the potential, I knew the danger, but in the unknown where uh, you place me in a foster home, that's when I'm scared because I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know that's it was completely unknown. So eventually um, a teacher sees the bruises that are on me because I was heavily ab- abused in the home as well. Um, that tipped off. Uh, uh, the uh, dPS as well the uh, the uh, what do they call it the human services department that was at our schools and in our cities that tipped them off with me and then family members extended family members started tipping off human services um, about my sisters and they were heavily abused as well and so uh, these things started to add up and then eventually they zoned in on my mother to kind of get the facts of everything and She no longer keep it uh, a secret. She was in fear of her life because she was getting heavily abused every day as well. And so um, she finally felt safe one year to tell uh, Human Services what was really going on. They took immediate action and and they wanted to remove us in an isolated place so there was no violence or, or no retaliation. So they got us all separately when we were away at school and they picked us off. One by one uh, from our classes and removed us quietly and uh, it was a weird day for me. I remember that day pretty vividly. I was sitting in the back of the class, and then my teacher steps out because someone from the hallway calls her out into the hall. She goes out into the hallway, and she comes back into class and i i may, as she 's coming into the classroom i 'm making eye contact with her, so she 's looking pretty serious, so i 'm thinking what did i do <laughs> what did the office just tell her did i did she catch me cheating uh, on my on my assignment uh, no she calls me to the front of the classroom and then she gives me this long long hug and she i can hear her sobbing and she said i'm gonna miss you and so at that point uh i knew something was wrong my immediately my heart dropped because i thought something must have happened to my mother oh sure That's, yeah I, I look out in the hallway i see my sisters so I immediately think, what happened to mom? That's where my mind goes. I know that's where their mind goes. All of our minds went there. So we don't know what's going on, but we knew where we were. And we knew the environment we were living in. We see the abuse to my mother. We think the abuse to us is normal, <laughs> but we knew the abuse to her was violence. We couldn't separate the two. We were too young to really know, but we knew what was happening to her was wrong. And we didn't think what was happening to us was since we were kids. Uh, we think we thought that anything could, you could do anything to a kid because they're a kid, so we didn't uh, put two and two together at that such a young age. So the social worker walks us down the aisle, let us know um, taking you away from your home um, uh, for safety reasons. You guys cannot go back home, so we're terrified. My older sister, I have a younger sister. We're holding hands, walking down the hallway. And uh, my older sister says, on a count of three, we're going to run. We're going to run back home on a count of three. And as we're walking towards the car, she's counting down three, two, one. And when she gets to the count of one, she doesn't run. She gets in the car. And, and we get in the car. And they're sobbing. I'm just curious. So I'm not, I'm, I'm not crying because I, I wanted to get out of that situation. Uh, So I was just looking forward to what's next. I I really wasn't crying or upset. I was more curious of the situation. I remember me just sitting there looking out of the window of the car as we were driving, just wanting to know what's next. But uh, that always stuck with me that my sister didn't run. So we went, that's when I entered my first foster home. I was there for about a couple months before I got into a fight with another kid after Uh, getting heavily abused by an adult you have zero tolerance for anyone else abusing you uh so on on any level so if another kid tries to fight you you kind of explode because you are pretty much you're not taking it from anyone anymore um after being removed and you've been put into a safer a safer place you don't any 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 discipline uh brings up a an explosion that uh that 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 uh, these kids fell victim to uh and so any I got into a fight a couple months into that uh, foster home it was too much for the parent to handle so they they called my social worker and wanted me to be removed because they felt I was a threat to the other kids uh because I didn't know I guess I had a very bad temper at that point um I wasn't medicated at all so they just removed me out of that that crazy situation without any therapy, without any medication, and just dropped me into a home with other kids. So I was just a ticking time bomb. That was definitely not a a really good move on on the social worker's end. She should have immediately got me some sort of counseling to uh, sort out these, these issues, but she did not. The uh, foster mother of that home wanted me to be removed immediately. And the only place that could house me at the time was an orphanage. And so they took me to this orphanage here in Michigan. This huge place. We pull into this massive college campus-style orphanage. It's huge. Um, it looks like a it's a like a Catholic church. Um, it was pretty impressive at what was built. Uh, you we were you, you were what eight at this time, Derek? I was eight at this time.
1: Okay,
0: and I, uh, I pull in. Inside these massive gates, you can't see anything on the outside. You can see walls. So you don't know what you're pulling into, which is very discreet. And I'm not I'm like, oh, if this discreet stuff must happen in this place. The kids, I pull in, there's thousands of kids everywhere in this place. And I immediately am excited because I immediately start seeing kids happy. I, just, I, I don't see a crying kid. I see kids having fun playing football, playing basketball, playing Frisbee, uh, going for a walk, skateboarding. You see kids having fun and I've never experienced the kind of fun that these kids were having before. I only saw this in movies. And so I was just in shock at what was going on here. And what it really took me by storm is when I get out of the car, all the kids start welcoming me like hi Derek they already knew my name wow. they knew how old I was uh, they had a gift basket waiting for me it was such a community that they built in that place that was impressive uh, then I knew I, I, I belonged I wanted to be there because of the community that is how nice the place was it, it really gave me a life and a childhood that I've never would have gotten anywhere else um, there I got counseling every single week there any medications that may have been needed i got there as well they uh constructed visits with my mother as well they really honed in on the family they, they let me see my brothers and sisters often as i wanted to that place pretty much it was the reason i survived uh, how long how long were you there until there you until you were 18 yeah so i was there for about 10 years wow broker record because usually kids get adopted
1: well that's what i was gonna say is yeah i mean it, that i that's my um one of my great aunts she used to take in uh foster children and that's exactly how it would work Is they seem like they would come in you know probably like what you were talking yeah, about from like from eight from opinion. eight from eight to something but not not the full 18 that that's a that's, a, that's quite here. the stint
0: so i had some options in my younger years when you first get there you're eight you're cute you're cuddly Nine, you're still cute. Uh, but 10, you hit a roast burden. and it's pretty much over. I towered over all the other kids. Uh, and so from 10 on out, it was, it was not happening. And then when you're, when you're younger, they read your file and you come from such a horrendous background. Mm. They, they, they don't know who your father is. They don't know any medical issues about you. They don't know your mental state because it's pretty unpredictable. Uh, you're, you're too much of a risk uh as a, as a kid uh they, they definitely did not want to take a chance on me and i had a couple staff members that were there uh quit their job and they wanted to adopt me uh that didn't work out of the state i guess that was a conflict of interest i guess once they get to you get to know me then you realize oh wait, actually he's he is just like the other kids he's mm-hmm. actually better he's they, so and but the only people that got to that level were staff members. If you were just someone looking to adopt a kid, you would just read what you saw on paper. If you just hung out with it, me, you probably would have moved forward with an adoption option. Uh, but that it never got to that level because what they read just scared them. Uh, it really scared them, it scared them crazy to hear that a kid can grow up in a life like that and possibly be okay at the end. No kidding. So I, I understood I understood greatly why no one wanted to make the move. If I saw that as well, I would have probably been hesitant looking at the paper, uh, especially looking at why the other kids were there. They were pretty much nothing compared to why I was there. I was the longest kid that ever lived there. Uh, so I was the worst of the worst that that came through that, through that home. And so uh, all through elementary school, I was there. All through middle school, I was there and high school. I was still there. So um, I always wanted to keep that a secret. I never wanted middle school. I never wanted my friends to come over. Uh, I only let select friends know. So Maybe only two friends in my life ever really knew. I always wanted to be a regular kid Uh, after coming there. And I seen how, how, what regular kids were. I wanted to be one so bad to where I, I kept all that hidden Um, and I felt what it was like when people found out that really hurt me to, because people treat you different when they found out you grew up, how I did, they want to do stuff for you. They They, went, yeah. Like pity party, sort of that, that sort of thing. Always a pity party when someone found out. And that made me cringe to know I had a teacher Uh, that. that found out in sixth grade and, um, she found out from someone else that lived in the home that had her class. And he threw me in like, yeah, me and Derek lives here and she she found out and then um, she stood up in front of the class and say okay Derek you don't have to do this homework assignment but everyone does and so now everyone's looking at me (laughs) like why does he not have to do it and so they really want to know and I I really can't tell them but just situations like that kept arising I played uh, basketball in middle school as well now I don't have to pay for school jerseys like everyone else and they want to know why doesn't he have to do this. It's, it just kept occurring where I just, I didn't, I, I really fought hard to not, not let anyone know because I just want to be treated regular. If I have to pay, if they have to pay, I, I want to try to pay too. And, and still in high school, that was how it was. Everyone treated me the same. No one knew when I went home where I was going. When I stayed at over a friend's house, I had to get permission, pretty much from the state of Michigan, right? right. And someone to sign off on me going to stay over someone's house. Um, But I stay over my friend's house. They never come stay over mine's. They kept it a secret still to this day. And so I still hang out with those small group of friends as well. And them keeping it a secret in high school uh, got me treated different. I did all my homework. I got good grades when I was was able to go to college. Um, So I didn't get any leg ups, which probably would have handicapped me. And I ended up running into an uncle that was, uh, that was pretty successful. And he was a, a chiropractor. And at that stage, I've never, ever met a doctor of any mm-hmm. sort. And so he ended up finding me. I'm 18 at this point. And um, he uh, takes me a weekend and takes me out to his house. He lived in Flint, Michigan. Everyone's heard of Flint, Michigan. They have the water crisis right. there. And he lived there when it was great. And he had his massive home in Flint, Michigan, and he took me there and just to, and just to introduce me to him and his family. But I, what I took from that moment is I didn't know things could be so nice. Um, I always wanted more. I wanted to be treated equal, and I, I always wanted more. Nothing was ever good enough, and I, I always kept striving. I never let anything defeat me. And so that toughness came early on. Uh, from the abuse, I always got back up. I always, you know, dust myself off whenever I fail at something. I always gotta beat it. I always have to conquer something. So it, it's 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 either in you or it's not, and it, it and it was in me. So when I graduated high school, I got to an academic scholarship at Western Michigan University. Uh, went to Western Michigan University, graduated there. Um, I jumped into the real estate industry. In college. and Sure um, degree. What did you study? Psychology. Okay. And then you went to real estate. All right. Keep going. <laughs> I didn't feel like dabbling in, in psychology much. I touched the real estate industry and it fit who I was. It fit the fight in me. It fit the personality in me a lot more to where I excelled in the real estate industry and the companies that I, I worked for. I kind of just shot straight up uh, into the corporate office. I started in the leasing world. And then I moved to the, um, the property manager, then the regional manager, then the operations manager. And I just kept climbing and climbing and climbing and climbing and climbing. And uh, all because I kept wanting to, to be better and, and be better and be better. So I used what was already in me and transcended it over to uh, an industry that would appreciate it. And, um, and so uh, that I started investing in, into my own real estate as well and then companies would start reaching out to me, uh, social working company, human resources companies would reach out to me because they heard from another human resource company that I exist. You know, They hear my story of, mm-hmm. on a court case or a court file, they hear I'm still alive. And that I went on to college, they want me to come and speak uh, to some younger kids. And that kind of took off a mind of its own. So not only am I working in real estate, Speaking kind of took off. I started doing one here and there for these human resources companies. They start referring me to other companies and other industries, and boom, you look up, and then now you're doing it for government agencies, and it's just turned into a thing of its own. And then I'm here. Yeah, tell me, tell me. I have two questions. What is so What is so So, your story
1: is first of all, it's very inspiring. I feel like we have a lot of common one I grew up I grew up poor but not nearly in the kind of situation you did um, but uh, grew up in a uh, Native American community and there's just in North Dakota there's not there's not a lot of economic opportunity whatsoever I was the first one to go to college some parallels are there for sure I mean, one phrase that kept coming to my mind was was uh, if if any if Connie said anything good in his life I think it's uh, uh, money isn't everything but not having it is And, and I think there's a lot of truth to that, right? People who don't grow up with that, they're always hungry and it's not just money. It's, it's, uh, part of it is just being secure. And and
0: and that's usually where it's, 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 it's exactly that it isn't money, but money is security in this country. And, and yeah, when you don't have it, yeah, your life will, will suck a lot more uh, it, it, it makes you comfortable, it, it takes you places, it expands your horizon, you eat better food, you wear better clothing, you travel to places you've never been, different countries, you know, you, you meet new people you would have never met, you have different social circles that you would have never had if you didn't have a comfortable life or, or money. And so, uh, or, but in order to get there, it, it has to be in you. Uh, you. You definitely can't teach a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I could have been taught uh, the the fight that's in me, the hunger that's in me. Those things you you can't you, you really can't teach in a school. Uh, the will is is not taught. That that isn't something that's in a textbook. You gotta kind of have it. Hundred percent,
1: yeah. Let's go back to two things then. So I wanted to at least get the Kanye quote in there because I really like that quote. <laughs> I live by it. He was and, right on. He was yeah. right on with that. quote. Oh,
0: he's not, he's not lying there.
1: Yep. So let's go back to real estate. Um, what do you think the biggest lesson you learned coming up in the real estate industry? And when you during your ascension, what, what is something that maybe st- stood out and surprised you? And now you kind of reflect on it and go, wow, that was a really good lesson. I'm, I'm glad I learned that.
0: The lesson is in, in the, in this industry, you you got to find whether you're working for yourself or you were, if you're working for a company, you got to find somewhere where you're comfortable. Both. Um, goals have to align when you're partnering with a company or when you're working for a company. If one side isn't happy, happy in the the real estate industry, it's never going to work. And and people (laughs) fight themselves thinking like, yeah, if I'm not happy, I can force it. Or if the company's not happy, maybe they'll keep me for a long, no, they won't keep you. If they're not happy with you and you won't stay, if you're not happy with them, Um, eventually you're not going to put in that same effort. You're going to, you're going to, you know, "Quote unquote," half-assed in a way, uh, your job every day because you're not happy, and then your employee will see that and ultimately let you go. Uh, but when both both of you are aligned, uh, so you, it, it, opportunities are everywhere in the real estate industry, and that, and you should never be worried about. Uh, I, I just need a job. No, they, it's it's so many out there. It's saturated with opportunities. Mm-hmm. That's the problem. The, the jobs are everywhere in this industry. It's too many jobs. You can leave the job and find the next one know, a, a couple days later, it, the opportunities are there. It's just finding the perfect fit. And, and property managers, or if you're a vice president, you, you know this, that these opportunities are literally everywhere and so easy to grasp and get. The salaries are all there. It's just one industry that, that seems to not be on the decline. It just keeps the opportunity just saturated everywhere you go, no matter what state you live in, no matter uh, what city you're in. Uh, it's just so many opportunities everywhere and i've worked all over the 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 country and it's 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 fortunate that um yeah the opportunities are everywhere, but finding the right company and the position is everything and and that's what's going to give you the longevity you need. I wish someone told me that uh you know when I was like twenty two <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, you're telling them now. Hopefully, that we do have some young listeners. We have a lot of college students that listen to this podcast, too.
0: Yeah, um,
1: so, so, I hope they hear that 100%. Mm-hmm. It, it, you, also already, you already answered one of my questions. You answered literally three or four or five of my questions already, which is brilliant. I mean, you, are, you speak, obviously, quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, your story just flows. But uh, one thing is... So you talked about how you transitioned to motivational speaking. Is that what you do? You don't do that full-time now, right? What what percentage of...
0: Now that COVID is here, no, I don't do that. But prior to COVID, it was 50-50. I would do quite a bit of speaking and uh, work full-time as well. So the speaking engagements are usually on the weekends anyway. Uh, And so they would fly you somewhere on a Friday afternoon you would speak either that friday night at an event or that saturday or that sunday and then you write back at work uh and that would happen every single week what what are you um without giving let's let's move on
1: to your to your documentary because it was interesting and i, I want to check it out i don't know if it's out yet you'll have to educate me if it is but without giving too much about the documentary innocence lost just in case anybody else missed that tell us a bit about it and then how you got involved in doing that were you just asked like you were with the speaking
0: you pretty much yes all right it's still in production. It's not going to be out this year. Uh, right now, I can't. I was I was approached to do it, uh, and I get to control pretty much uh, the narrative in the, in the image. So I, it needed to be authentic, uh, and um, the goal is to hit it on Netflix as, and that's the only oh, cool. one right now. And so the marketing promotion will, will all be done. Uh, it's 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 pretty much basically. Uh, my life, in in my eyes, um, I'll, I get to be the executive producer of it. So this opportunity definitely uh, is, is is once in a lifetime. Someone felt my story is enough to they want to transcend it onto film, and uh, it's definitely going to be a sight to see. I, I definitely it's it's a little I, I don't I, we have we can't keep it too raunchy because it, it it's yeah. Something stuff that has happened that we now have to kind of translate that into a film Mm -hmm. and translate that to an audience without um offending scaring being too graphic so when you lived a crazy life transitioning it over to film is a battle in in itself because it's some stuff that just won't make sense uh to all walks of people uh and so we we have to make it uh, you know appealing and inter- entertaining as well and so that aspect in it as well but uh, yeah we, we, it's going to be pretty good
1: excited yeah I'll have to I'm definitely now speaking with you I'm glad I learned about it I can't wait to check it out um, here, uh, one question I wanted to ask you which is uh, in my world it's a tough question maybe in your world it's not and but w- with the zeitgeist of how everything is it right now uh, tensions are high in the States. And and one thing, one thing we hear a lot about is this idea of privilege. Mm -hmm. Um, so as someone who came up from literally nothing, Mm -hmm. what is your take on the idea of privilege? Does it exist in that some people are inherently more privileged than others just because of their skin color Mm -hmm. or does it exist simply as a mental construct Mm -hmm. and that those that want to play a victim. So they have an excuse not to rise
0: up. It's both. And this is someone that <laughs> that's african American and was in some crazy circumstances it's both both play a huge part here's a one incident is that in the inner cities, the bus don't run to the suburbs because if you live in the suburbs, every time it comes time to vote on do you want a certain bus line to come across? I know it's here in Michigan uh, it gets vote down, so now the inner city buses don't cross into the suburbs, which past the suburbs, those where the jobs are, those where the plants are, the suburbs have the malls. The sub- so it's a lot of inner city kids can't get to work. And all the shops and stores and, and places to work in the inner cities are usually uh, owned by uh, Orientals or Indians. It's usually Latino owned. They usually don't hire African-Americans in the inner city stores that where in, inner city people shop. So uh, it's a little of both. Uh, it's, it's definitely it's it's some just don't have the will to to make it happen as well. Some some people are a, a little lazy and, and don't want to apply themselves. Uh, and so some there are some opportunities that they've received that they rejected because they may be like ah eh, no I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. That that could be a step to a vehicle that could get you over to that opportunity, but they don't want to do the one thing. And then the other thing is yeah. Your skin color is preventing them from voting on that bus line that crosses it because they don't want to see you walking through their neighborhoods. They don't want to see you walking through their, their neighborhoods or to get to the job that you're going to go to because in fear, uh, you're also letting over criminals as well. If you do that, that is the risk. Yeah, you're letting people over that do need to get to work, but you're also letting over people who do crime in your neighborhoods. So it is, it, it's, it's a battle it's a battle on on both sides as well. So it is both race has a lot to do with it and uh, mentality has a lot to do with it as well. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a pull and tug kind of situation uh, on both sides. I appreciate
1: how broad your answer was because you, you recognize that, that, you know, maybe the, maybe these suburban voters were, they don't want the criminals, So, and then, but then you recognize that, well, well, you know, the criminals are going to come with the people who just want to work and get up and rise up too. And Mm -hmm. I I think, I think that's, that's one thing I wish, you know, like corporate media and mainstream media and just largely we would, we, this is, these are the kind of conversations that people need to hear. Mm -hmm. The three minute sound bites don't do anybody any good because there, there is that nuance to the whole situation. So it's not this cut and dry black and white, literally, where yeah. people were, were, you know what I mean? There's a lot of nuance to all of that. What do you, how yeah. do you, how do you, what is your strategy when you go out and you speak? Are you trying to reach those people that we, that we kind of talked about just now
0: about that? They, they ask me questions all the time. Like, because um, at 18, I was homeless for a minute while trying to figure everything out. And they were like, you're 18, you could have got a job. And I say, mm-hmm. well, I lived in Detroit. I, I, and then I kick it back to them. I say, how? And then they say, you could have applied to go work at Little Caesars. You could have applied to go work at a, at a stadium or a mall. And I said, yeah, how would I get there? And they say, you could have took a bus. Which bus? And they say, well, especially here, they say, you could have took the Woodward bus straight down to this mall. And I said, but that bus doesn't cross eight miles. You know, you can give them examples. That bus doesn't cross eight miles. They're mm-hmm. like, wait, what do you mean it, it doesn't cross? What do you mean it doesn't cross? It doesn't cross. And they say, yeah. how, how doesn't it cross? And I said, well, no, here's how it doesn't cross. It crossed eight miles. is considered the suburbs. Last year, you voted to not let that bus cross. I would be on that bus going to a job. But you only think about criminals coming on that bus. Right. Like 99% of the passengers on that bus are criminals. No, maybe only 1% on that bus. So you're saying no to the people you think can just go out and get a job and usually they sit back down. Well, you So,
1: the people I was hoping you would be talking to in that, and I appreciate you um,
0: talking to the, that was, that's not the audience I was, <laughs> uh, the audience usually stand up and yeah and nitpick at the story. Yeah, I, I, I
1: don't, and Derek, I don't mean exactly that the people exactly asking you the questions. I mean, when you go in there and those people it's, it, I, I applaud you for being able to
0: educate those people, especially mm-hmm. through questions. It's such, that's brilliant. Yeah, I love doing the Q&A. I, these are, this is what I do it for. I, I want to educate people so they see how uh, people like me, uh, who, who they see only on the media and hear about, it's, I'm not, I'm everywhere. I'm just, yeah. I'm just, someone, I'm just the one that's speaking, but it's millions and millions and millions of me. And uh, they don't get to see every day. They just see people with the same skin tone across their screen, and so they only know a half bit. Now you get an opportunity to actually speak to one. Like, yeah, you know, well,
1: but but what's what's brilliant about your strategy is that you're just asking those. You're just you're just asking them questions. Mm-hmm. I found the same thing. If I go talk to somebody who doesn't agree with me politically, I'm actually mm-hmm. not. I'm I'm actually I make it a point not to talk at them. I'm literally just, I just ask them questions and I just ask them that, question, after after about, question after question.
0: Because you want to hear, how did you come to that conclusion? Mm-hmm. I want to know if this is your thought, how and why? Because you you're, you're clearly have your own way of coming to that conclusion. I want to see where, where you're, what you're putting together. And maybe I can see where I'm coming from to see where that divide is and give you some answers and you can give me some answers. So maybe we both would be like, oh, this is the issue. Yep. And now we say, "Oh, it's not you and I, actually." Exactly. And then we then can agree. Yep. Or and it, yeah. Because, because, right. Where they the idea is not to change. I, I think the
1: idea is not to change a person's mind about those kind of these kind of topics that get a little heated. It's about mm-hmm. it's about exploring everybody's your ideas mutually, hopefully, in a in a situation that is not hot and heated. And then you and then you do go away from that conversation thinking. And then after mm-hmm. after the thought, and then also you got to think about the audience, right? The sure. audience is watching you and that person interact, and you guys sure. are sort of putting on a show in this in a
0: display rather. <laughs> and those weird. people in the audience are the people they're learning making. too. Yes, they're, exactly. They have thoughts, the similar thoughts they may think like you, they may think like them. They're putting it all the thoughts in their head, and the answers you're giving may click for them. And now they're thinking slightly different because of your answers, even though you're not talking directly to them. Yes, sir. But how about the people that um, are like you, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody who grew
1: up with dealt like a, a hand of twos, threes, and fours yeah. versus the yeah. person with an ace. How, what do you, how, when you go speak, how are you trying to reach those people and maybe maybe steer them in the direction of something like you talked about earlier where they're like, I, there were opportunities, but they didn't take advantage of them. Everybody's dealt a different hands of cards. So how do you get the people that are dealt the shitty hands of cards I
0: have no other word to use other than shitty. They're, the reason they're not taking these opportunities, they have a lot of doubt on themselves because mm-hmm. of the hand they were built. They see the hand that they're built very clearly. Then they know all the other hands everyone else has dealt. I was them. So I see that like this is my GPA now. I don't got a shot. Like I might as well just lower my standards really low and and, and that's how they'll proceed. But they, they need someone, as I had. I had an uncle that showed me the other side.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: so that's what they need as well. They need someone that's done it to say, here's how to do it. And you open up their cards and say, okay, you got some twos. Here's an ace. And now you have ace high. Now, now you can now maneuver. Now you can beat some hands. You're not going to beat all of them with this hand. Mm-hmm. but Now you have a leg up. Now you're going to win some and you're going to lose some, but now you have a fight. And so that's what it's about. It's about resources and, and giving some of those resources to them and educating them and, and showing them that even with your hand, you can still win some, but they need that confidence and motivation to do so right now. They have no one speaking to them and giving them that confidence in those resources. So they're left to their own devices and this is what you get. That's beautiful. That is
1: exactly it it's exactly it. And, and th- again, this is, this is the conversation I wish I, everybody would hear most of the time is that sure. We recognize all the hands. Some people get aces, you know, some people get, some people get the small hands, but then they need people like you mm-hmm. to go out there and do that. I, I, I'm with mm-hmm. you, man. That's awesome. Um, one wrap up question that I'd like to add, cause we're running up on, on a half hour here, uh, mm-hmm. is, um, that I like to ask everybody is, uh, knowing what you know now. And if you could go back in time, and, and give yourself one piece of advice maybe when you're 18 what would that piece of advice be buy
0: amazon stock <laughs> yeah brother <laughs> i'm with you uh, that would that would be great but no i would um i would tell myself to probably be a lawyer <laughs>
1: oh interesting
0: yeah i would tell myself to probably be a lawyer uh, if, if, since I'm me, me uh, coming from where I did, African-American, I would probably tell myself, go, go be a lawyer. And if you're a, a, a young kid and you're, you're getting good grades in school and, and you have a shot, uh, go be a lawyer. In, in the African-American community, there's not enough mm-hmm. African-Americans defending legally African-Americans. hundred percent. And so it starts there. Uh, it, it starts there. You can just by you don't have to be a criminal lawyer. You don't have to be a real estate lawyer. You can be whatever lawyer you want to be. Just be, and you'll be able to provide some resource to somebody else somewhere. Because now you're a lawyer, you have the knowledge, you have the resources, you have the contacts. Because because a, a lawyer just does so much and meets so many people in so many avenues and so many you could be a lawyer and, and have a massive impact in just one community. Absolutely. Great answer. Uh, Derek, this has been
1: one of my favorite conversations I've had so far with anybody on this podcast. I, I, thank you so much for having the patience to, for us to finally connect. No um, problem. No yeah, problem. because I've been wanting to talk to you for I think is like three or four weeks now. Um, how can people if people want to find you? How can they? How can they find you? How can they follow you on social media? How can they? Get I you have a, you?
0: A, a podcast as, as well called um, My Thoughts with Derek Kirk, and uh, that's where I pretty much put things into my perspective, just like how we did just now, and it's just that me help educating people on things that they may disagree on or they may look at different, then I put a spin on them and I try to do it from their shoes, from other people's shoes, not from my shoes, not from the African-American shoes at all. I try to do it from someone who would oppose shoes and then I wrap them around to ours so you can make a connection. And then you can take that information or or maybe that may change a view, but that's what the show is. It's it's, it's just that and they can uh, catch me on uh, www.derekkirk.com as well. And on the website, uh, you'll find links to my Instagram and Facebook. Awesome. Thanks, buddy.
1: You have a good night. You stay safe and you keep motivating people. All right? I'll do my best.
0: All right. Good night as well.